I was glad when they said to me, we'll go to the house of the Lord. There's no place else I'd rather be than with you in the presence of our great God. So good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, um, already I really hope and pray that you taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what I want for us. And um, I'd love to meet with you if you're new and uh, be in a place called the Fireside Room right outside services. It's just outside these glass doors and to the right. You, you can't miss it. And I, I don't want to miss you. So if uh, you've got a few moments after services and uh, can have a few sentences of conversation and a, perhaps a prayer, we'd love to. We'd love, we want you to feel at home here. Uh, at Windsor Road. So thank you for being a part of our service today. It's, it's a privilege for me to get to worship our Lord with you. Um, so if you are new, we're in a teaching series. What we do is I just open the Bible and we just learn what God's Word says. And we are in a teaching series uh, over a passage of Scripture that's titled The Fruit of the Spirit. The Fruit of the Spirit. The, the harvest, the crop of the Holy Spirit that God works in and through us to produce in and through us what we cannot work our own. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And we're just taking a Sunday on each of these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And last week we talked about love. Love, the willing self-sacrifice uh, uh, for the good of another. That does not require reciprocation or that the beloved is worthy or deserving. Love. And this morning we're going to be thinking about, we're going to study joy, biblical joy. What does the Bible say about this other dimension of joy? Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 126. Because here's a passage of Scripture that describes the kind of joy that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Psalm 126, you'll find that on page 517 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please avail yourselves to the, um, copy the Scripture in the pouch in front of you, and uh, you can receive it as a gift from the church family. I'm going to read Psalm 126. A song of ascents. Now, what's that mean? Ascent, an ascent. So, this it, song is in a playlist of songs in the book of Psalms that describe what God's people did when they traveled to Jerusalem to worship. And while they are making their way, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Jerusalem in the temple, they're singing. And this is one of the songs that they're singing. 
And the reason why it's called an ascent is because Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. And so it doesn't matter what direction you approach Jerusalem, you're going uphill and you're ascending. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. There's an alternative translation to that, which says, it was said among the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word. So yesterday was the birthday of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has been called the greatest mind that America has ever produced. His birthday was 316 years ago yesterday. He was born in 1703, and in 1726, he was hired as assistant pastor of the famous Northampton Church in New England under his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. A few years later, 1729, Edwards became the lead pastor of that church, and uh, it was a flourishing ministry. But in 1750, about 24 years later, Edwards was fired from his congregation for a doctrinal difference. And there was like, it was like a week-long church trial and there were other ministers who were involved, and the congregation was involved, and, and Edwards lost by a ratio of 10 to 1. They took a vote. And after nearly 24 years, the greatest mind America ever produced was shown the door. During the trial... People were watching Edwards' reactions, and they noted how remarkably calm he was. Even saintly is what someone said. But here's what one pastor wrote. This is what he said. He said concerning Edwards, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. And here it is. He appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. Wow. What, what would that be like to have your happiness, to have your joy, to have your contentment on such a high shelf, out of reach, 
out of reach from physical suffering, from unemployment, from discouragement, from ridicule, out of reach, protected, untouchable, untouchable joy. Untouchable joy. That's where we're going today. So often I feel like my joy is contingent on my mood, my health, my blood sugar, my schedule, my favorite team, my internet connection, the weather, the traffic, the traffic, the traffic from, from this church to my house the other day I just thought I was going to come out of my skin. <laughs> On-time arrival of flights. Yeah. The two tablespoons of milk left in the carton in the fridge. Who does that? <laughs> come on. Oh, wait, that was me. We're, we're empty nesters now. I can't, blame, I can't blame the boys. So anyway, I do anyway, right? I mean, it does not take a psychology degree to figure out that joy left on the bottom shelf guarantees its spoilage. But today, I want us to consider untouchable joy. Joy on high. Joy that is out of this world's reach. Hmm. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. He said that just before the cross. And that your joy may be full. And then in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul said, Paul said to a congregation, Pastor Paul said this to a congregation, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. My job as your pastor is to work with us for your supreme joy. That's, that's part of my responsibility. I've met too many pastors who've been baptized in pickle juice. And I know what it's like to act that way. But my job is to work with you for your joy. So, jo joy is not a prerequisite to Christianity. It's an outcome. It's a consequence of the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. And I'm telling you, people crave joy. In fact, 
We were created to crave joy. And, you know, we try to get it through the oddest places. We, we, we pay for it through entertainment. We, we pay actors and comedians and musicians big money for a few drops of joy on our parched tongues. But the effects are temporary. And what I want for us is to desire supreme joy, supreme happiness. And what I mean by that is this. I want us to be happy. I want us to be happy. Let, let me put it this way. When I say I desire an oatmeal cookie, I do not mean that I want to be an oatmeal cookie. Happiness is not desiring to be an object. Happiness is the experience from that object. And so sin is not wanting supreme happiness. Sin is seeking supreme happiness in anything other than God because God will not fail you. That's why one author wrote, your greatest pleasure is the measure of your greatest treasure. And I want us to consider the treasure of, of supreme joy. I want us to think about three truths about supreme joy that come to us in Psalm 126. The freedom of joy, how attractive this joy is, and then how generous this joy is. The freedom of joy, the attraction of joy, the generosity of joy. First, the freedom of joy. It, it, it's, it's in verses 1 and 2 where, where joy delights in God's rescue. Joy is the feeling that you feel when God's love frees you from your past. Joy is what you feel when God finally does what you've been waiting for him to do. So joy comes to us from the outside as a surprise gift. It's, it's unearned. When you get paid on payday, you may be grateful, but you're not really surprised. You were expecting it. It's, you earned it. It's scheduled. But if on payday, you get not only your wages, but a $1,000 bonus. I'm not talking about overtime. I'm just talking about a bonus. Holy mackerel. You go to HR, is this right? This right. Is this no, it's not a mistake. This is awesome. So, so is it that kind of joy? Verse 1: when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we, we were like those who dream. This psalm recalls the return from Israel's 70-year exile in Babylon. Imagine being sent to exile when you're 14 years old and you leave Israel for Babylon and you become a refugee for 70 years, you're in a foreign land. That's all you know for seven decades. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, at 84 years of age, you'd heard rumors of a return, but you've been in Babylon for so long, that's all you know. And the stroke of a pen Cyrus decrees, go back to your homeland. And we were like those who dream. Is this a dream? 
pinch me. We're, we're actually going back. No wonder verse 2 says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Joy is the, joy is the story of enslavement, emancipation, and celebration. It's all throughout the Bible, isn't it? For instance, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was enslaved and sent to Egypt. And he lived and worked as a slave. And as far as he knew, that would be his reality. But no, one night Pharaoh had nightmares and Joseph was summoned. Scripture says quickly he was bathed, shaved, and appropriately clothed. He answered Pharaoh's questions and that night he slept on a different mattress. Emancipated from prisoner to prime minister. And he eventually brought his family to be with him. Celebration. Enslavement, emancipation, celebration. What about the book of Exodus? God's people were enslaved in Egypt 400 years. God emancipated them through his servant Moses. And one moment they're making bricks without straw. And the next moment they're sashaying through the Red Sea. Enslavement, emancipation, celebration. In the Gospels. That first Easter morning, ladies went to the tomb to care for the corpse of Christ. They saw an empty tomb. The angel announced, he's not here, he's risen. They raced back to the disciples. He's risen, just as he said. They replied, those disciples replied, he did not. Then Christ appeared. Yes, I did. In Galatians. Paul says you were enslaved in the realm of the flesh and you could not emancipate yourself. But Christ did. Christ emancipated us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Paul says in Galatians 3.26, And now in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. That's why we can truly say the best is yet to come. Enslavement, emancipation, celebration. Our happiness, our joy is untouchable, not because we won the lottery, not because it's sunny and 70, not, become, not because everything comes up roses, our happiness is untouchable because it rests where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Joy is how you feel when love frees you from your past. It's not contingent on what you do. It's contingent on what Christ has done for you. You know this kind of joy. If you do... Others will know it too. And that takes us to this next section here in Psalm 126. Because this kind of joy is attractive. Joy not only delights in God's rescue, but joy declares God's works. Declares publicly. Publicly. 
So joy lives outside to be recognized and acknowledged even by people who do not yet belong to God. Look at verse 2. That's why I talked about this translation. I don't know why the ESV has it this way, but some of your translations, and I prefer it, says, Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. Think about that. So non-Israelites were scratching their heads, trying to figure out how it is the Hebrews were able to return to their homeland. I mean, something happened that they, they even they can't explain. And they, it's noticeable. It's public. That's the way joy is. Joy, joy is a concert where you hear the most soaring music you've ever heard, and it transports you to, to heaven, and, you, and afterwards you just grab the arm of a person sitting next to you. You don't even know that person. Is that not the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? Joy is the, is the championship game where you witness a, a, a last-second score. Is it going to make it? Is it going to make it? It made only it <laughs> Victory! Yelling, screaming, fist pumps, running around, hugging each other, a human pileup. It looks silly to outsiders, but that's the signature of joy. And is there a hint of longing in verse 2? The Lord has done great things for them. For them. He did it for them. When we, can He do it for us? Is it possible? And, and so this, this recognition in verse 2 becomes an acknowledgement in verse 3. Yes, Israel acknowledges what the nations observed. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So there's a faith story. When God grants his people this bumper crop of joy, it's something to talk about. As Jesus instructed the man in Mark chapter 5, whom he healed, he said, Go back and tell your family and friends what the Lord has done for you. So, listen, if you want to draw people to Christ, grumpy doesn't do it. Neither will moody or grouchy. I mean, it won't. Okay? And yet, I understand what maybe some might be thinking because we read your prayer requests and we will pray over them, every one of them, by name, Tuesday morning in staff and Tuesday evening in our elders meeting. Stories of unemployment, Stories of employment with the pressure of commission. Stories of illness. Stories of death. Stories over our children and grandchildren and parents. And, and, and I understand this. And this psalm understands this. Those who first sang this psalm were not strangers to suffering. They, they had the ache of exile in their souls. They knew pain. So Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Rather, it 
situates sorrow in God's big picture. And, and here is what I need to explain about how God's people thought and then how that thinking matured with the coming of Christ. God's people of old had this idea that when God came to free them, you know, it would, it would more or less look like this. There would be, you know, this age, and then there, was, there would be this, this world-changing event called the day of the Lord, and then there would be the age to come. Two ages. Two ages that annex each other with, with a clear boundary from one age to the next age. But as Christianity spread and the gospel took root in the Roman Empire, here's what God's people learned. The Apostle Paul said the outer person is fading away, but the inner person is being renewed day by day. So in other words, in Christianity, the Bible teaches Overlapping ages, overlapping ages. Easter Sunday commenced the day of the Lord. But the old age overlaps with the new age. And this overlapping phase is what's been called the now and the not yet. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure, this, this, this new age, age to come treasure in jars of clay, this old age, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so in this overlapping phase, the Apostle Paul would talk about being afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And then later on in 2 Corinthians 6, 8, he would say that we would experience both honor and dishonor, slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying we live, as punished and yet not killed. And then he says this, important, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So there's a sense in which when you come to Christ, you become, you become a person of extremes. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The old age and the new age overlap. But make no mistake, the old is passing away. And behold, all things are new. And laughter is the delight that all things work for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's why when the Apostle Paul was beaten, bloodied in Philippi at midnight while stuck in a dungeon, he could sing hymns at midnight because he knew where his joy was. He he did not put his joy on the bottom shelf. It was unreachable. Christ is risen. And day by day, we are being formed into the likeness 
of Christ. And I'm telling you, that is attractive. When your world sees you and your untouchable joy in your sorrow, they, they get curious. And that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to speak gospel words to them. And it's then their opportunity to respond in faith. And that's what you've been wanting to do all along, right? You've, you've wanted a platform to share your faith. And in your hurt, you share your joy. And, and that's, that's what's going on in this final section of Psalm 126, where joy delights well in, in, in freedom and feeling the love of God, being emancipated, and joy then declares God's work. And now joy desires repentance. Because, so, so joy works to bring that which is good to others. It's not just me enjoying God's goodness, but it's, but it's God's delight in and through my life so that, so that others might enjoy. I want, I want happiness for you. And that's what's behind this prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, is literally bring back our captivity. Fortunes doesn't simply refer to finances. Fortunes refers to the value of people. Bring back our captivity like streams in the Negev. Now, what's the Negev? It's a region of Israel. On the right side of your screen. <laughs> bring, bring back the captives like streams in the Negev. There's no streams there. It's barren. It's parched. It's dry, except when there's a flash flood, because that's the only time you see streams in the desert. The psalmist pleads that God would graciously flood the riverbed. Right now, the road from, from Babylon to Israel is bare, but the prayer is, God, bring back more people. Bring them back. Flood the highway home. Do for others what you've done for us. Gospel happiness takes place when I pray that something good will happen to someone I love, even my enemy. And then I participate in that. That's the phrase, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who sow in tears. Anybody know something about that? Parents praying that our children would be wise. Parents praying that our children would, would complete the course of studies, would graduate, would marry a believer. Prayers for healing. Prayers for the grieving. Prayers that our sister churches in our community would flourish. 
Prayers that our schools would be safe. Prayers for peace in our nation. Fervent, tearful, persevering prayer. Going out weeping. How can weeping and joy be together? It's this overlapping where my heart goes out. I, I want the world to experience what God has been so gracious to give me in Christ. And Paul says, don't stop praying about that. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good. We get tired, don't we? We get tired of waiting and we get tired and fatigued. And let us not grow weary in doing what is good. In due season, in due season, we will reap. We will reap if we do not give up. Well, make no mistake, joy is not for the faint of heart. Joy is a fight. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. So it, joy requires working and weeping, but weeping is not the final word. Making disciples, sharing the gospel, living for Christ in a, in a crooked world is heartbreaking and frustrating and disappointing, and it must continue. Paul says, death is at work in us, so that life is at work in you. And I saw, I saw a huh, sorrowful yet always rejoicing picture of this this week in the story of an 18-year-old young man, Brant Jean. On September 6, 2018, Amber Geyer, an off-duty patrol officer in Dallas, entered the apartment of 26-year-old accountant Botham Jean, it's Brant's older brother. Amber Geyer later testified that she thought it was her own apartment. She mistook Jean for a burglar. Though he was sitting in his living room eating ice cream and watching TV, she shot him twice, killed him. And one year later, October 1st, this past week, she was found guilty of murder. October 2nd, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And Botham Jean's brother, Brant, was allowed to give a victim impact statement. He addressed Amber Geyer directly. I want you to see that video, then I want to talk about it. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you.
because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Now let me say this. We admire and celebrate the forgiveness of both and Jean's brother, Brant. What a portrait of Christ. What a, what a picture of untouchable joy. And it does not nullify the ongoing work of identifying and opposing racial injustice. The inequities and systematic injustices must continue to be confronted, and even more so as a dimension of joy in Christ. Because what's at stake here is really a war between two realms. Two realms. And that's what that video shows. The realm of the works of the flesh and the consequences thereof. And the realm of the fruit of the Spirit and the life thereof. And one realm ends badly. That realm has been identified by Paul in Galatians 5 as the realm of the works of the flesh. And anyone who belongs to the works of the flesh becomes vulnerable. And that realm must not have the final word. That's why the judge gave her a Bible. That realm, the old realm, is passing away. It's gasping. It has been overwhelmed by another realm, exemplified in the life of an 18-year-old who worships the Christ who died, buried, and was raised to life. And with the sending of his spirit on his people, the king's spirit flows through us such that we become we become, all of us in Christ, an embassy of joy. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy that delights in the God who rescues us from a past from which we could not extricate ourselves. Joy that is attractive and declares what God has done. And joy that desires the repentance of all. Joy that pleads with a sinner to repent and turn to Christ. Joy that derives its strength from the innocent suffering of the just God-man who died an unjust death for us. For us to see the glory of untouchable joy, someone had to die an unjust death for us.
Do you know him? Will you give yourself to him? Because what he did, he did joyfully for you. That is why Hebrews 12, 2 pleads, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, that's you, that's me, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.